Good morning to each of you this morning. I greet you in the name of Jesus, and it is good to be virtually with you this morning. I'm disappointed I can't be with you in the way that God intends for us to meet together, but obviously with the situation we're facing now, it's what we have to do, and praise God for technology and for the fact that we can meet in this way. And, and we can, even though we're not together, we can take the Word of God, we can open it up, we can dig into it, and, and we can learn better what God has for us as His people. And so I trust this morning as we do that, as we, as we take the Word of God and as we look into it, that we can worship Him this morning, and He can be our focus. And even though, again, we're not together in the way we would like, we're, we're still worshiping God, we're still learning from His Word. I would just take this moment to, to, to say a few things to the, the people at Mabel. I was, again, I was looking forward to this opportunity to be with you now that you're part of West Rockingham. I probably won't get many opportunities to, to come and share with you. And so I was, I was glad that I had this one. But I, I, I do want to say that I appreciate the, the passion I see in, in the church there at Mabel, the, the desire you have to, to get out and be a light. Be a light in a dark world. And there are so many people who are, are searching, and, and they, they need what we have. And we, we have what they need. And, and so I, I trust and I believe that, they, well, I know God sees your effort, and I believe that He will bless it. So continue to, to persevere and, and shine that light. You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel for a message this morning. Recently I've been doing some studying in Ezekiel, and this is in preparation for a series and the message you're getting this morning is the second message of this series. But I want to introduce the series to you this morning just to, to give you a little uh, background of, of where I'm going with these messages. I want to start by reading the last verse of, of Ezekiel chapter 1. And this is right at the end of some visions that Ezekiel sees. If you, if you read through chapter 1, Ezekiel's seeing these, these visions, and some of them we don't really, it, it's hard to understand exactly what God is showing Ezekiel. But we get to the last part of chapter 1, and Ezekiel sees a throne with a man on it. And he tells us in, in the best way he knows how, and you can tell he's, if you read this, he's, he's struggling to, to really get across the point that he wants to us, but in the best way he knows how, he, he tries to tell us about this vision he sees. And then at the end, he tells us exactly what it is. And so we're going to see that here in verse 28. So Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face. 
and I heard a voice of one that spake. So there's three things that I want to point out here in this verse that, that make up what this series is about. So the, the first thing that I want to point out is Ezekiel sees the glory of God. So, so this vision he's seeing here at the end is, it says, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So that's what God showed Ezekiel. He showed him his majesty. He showed him his splendor. He helped Ezekiel see exactly who he was. So that's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing I want you to see is the way Ezekiel responds to this experience with God. It says that in verse 28, And when I saw it, I fell upon my face. Ezekiel, when when he sees God for who he really is, he falls on his face. Now, is it important for us to fall on our face when we come before God? And I'll just just break into your thought here by saying, I may ask several questions throughout this message, and I'll just pause briefly to to allow you to to consider it and come up with an answer in your own mind before I give it to you. But so is it necessary for us to fall on our face when we come before God? I think that most of us would probably say that, that that's not how we typically respond. But I want you to think, what is falling on our face? Ezekiel falling on his face, what does that represent? I think it represents humility, surrender, submission, worship. It symbolizes a reliance on on another. And and you could add to that list. I think that's some of the basic things that, that... Ezekiel falling on his face represents. Now, are these things important for us when we come before God? Humility, worship, brokenness, surrender, submission. I believe these things are imperative when we come before God. We we must come to God with these attributes. I think when when we truly get a glimpse of who God is, this is the only appropriate response. Yes, we may not physically fall on our face, and yet we must humble ourselves in in submission and in surrender and in worship and fear before God and fall on our face. So that's the second thing. Now, the third thing I want you to see in this verse is that after Ezekiel responds to God, God then speaks to Ezekiel. So at the end of the verse... I heard a voice of one that spake. Now, this pattern of God revealing himself to Ezekiel, Ezekiel responding to God by falling on his face, and then God speaking to Ezekiel is a pattern that occurs multiple times as we go through the book of Ezekiel. And this is what the series is about. That... When we, when we see God for who he truly is, and we respond to that like Ezekiel did, with humility, surrender, submission, 
then God is going to be able to speak to us. And God is going to be able to use us. And God is going to be able to make us who he wants us to be. And so what I'm doing in this series is taking these instances where where God speaks to Ezekiel. and, And I want to look at what God says and see what we can learn from what God tells Ezekiel. And so in the first message of this series, we looked at God's message to Ezekiel in chapter 2. And basically what we see, God's response to Ezekiel this first time, was God immediately called Ezekiel into a life of service. And the essence of the message was, when God saves us from sin, God calls us to serve. And that's a pattern that we see throughout Scripture. And, and I gave various examples in that message of, of people in Scripture. They saw God for who He was. They fell on their face. And God immediately calls them to service. There's, there's multiple people that we see in Scripture. We see that pattern. So if, if Jesus is our Savior, then Jesus is our Master. If, if God has saved us from sin, He will call us to serve. He never calls us just simply to sit. He calls us to serve in, in some capacity or another. Now for a message this morning, we're going to be looking at two more places where we again see this pattern playing out. And the point I want to make this morning is in both of these accounts. So the first one is in, is in Ezekiel chapter 3. So you can turn there. And I want to read, starting chapter 3, starting with verse 22. And the hand of the Lord was there upon me, and he said unto me, Arise, go forth into the plain, and I will there talk with thee. Then I arose and went forth into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, as the glory which I saw by the river of Shabar, and I fell on my face. So there we have this pattern starting to play out. He sees the glory of God and he falls on his face. Now, what's the next thing that happens? Verse 24. Then the Spirit entered into me and set me upon my feet and spake with me. God speaks to Ezekiel after Ezekiel responds in humility and surrender and submission before God. God speaks with him and said unto me, here's God's message, the end of verse 24, go, shut thyself within thine house. And I'm just going to stop reading there. Actually, I'll read one more verse, verse 25. But thou, O son of man, behold, they shall put bands upon thee and shall bind thee with them, and thou shalt not go out among them. The thing that I see in this passage that I want to point out this morning is that God's call to Ezekiel led him into a life of separation. A life of separation from the world. And I believe that today, when we experience God, when we see God for who He is and we respond to Him the way we've been talking about, the way Ezekiel did, God will always call us to a life of separation and holiness. 
So the title of the message this morning is A Call to Separation. Now the picture we have here in Ezekiel 3 is a picture of intentional isolation. Verse 24 says, Go, shut thyself within thine house. And then 25, Thou shalt not go out among them. Intentional isolation. Now, is it really God's desire for us as his holy people to intentionally isolate ourselves from the world? Is that, is that God's desire? And I, I think we would all agree that no, it's not. God doesn't want us to isolate ourselves from the world. Now, he does tell us in 2 Corinthians 6, come out from among them and be ye separate. He does tell us that. But he also tells us in Mark 16, verse 15, this is Jesus speaking, he said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So how do you reconcile those two verses? Does God want us to isolate ourselves from the world, or does he want us to go into the world? I believe that God commands that the church would go into the world but he never intends for the world to creep into the church. God wants a holy people. God wants a holy church. He wants a separate people, a separate church. And, and I think we would all agree there's a big difference between separation and isolation. And we could talk about that more, but we're not going to spend much time there. But here in chapter 3, God calls Ezekiel to intentional isolation. But that was for a specific time and for a specific purpose. I want to go now to chapter 43. Chapter 43, I'm going to start reading with verse, verse 1. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looketh toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision that I saw by the river Shabar. So there... God reveals himself to Ezekiel. Now, the end of verse 3, and I fell upon my face. Ezekiel responds to God. Verse 4. Actually, I jump down to verse 6. And I heard him speaking unto me out of the house, and the man stood by me. God then speaks to Ezekiel. So what was God's message? For Ezekiel. Again, if, if you look at, at the whole context of this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point this out, but again, it's a call to separation. And to really get the whole picture of this, we need to go back to chapter 40. And at the beginning of chapter 40, God, again, begins to show Ezekiel a vision. And... It's, it, this, this vision is a vision of a city. And God tells him in, in chapter 40, verse 4, to pay close attention to everything that he sees 
in this vision. Because he says, For to the intent that I might show unto them, might show them, let me start over the middle of uh, verse 4. For to the intent that I might show them unto thee art thou brought hither. Declare all that thou seest to the house of Israel. So God wanted Ezekiel to, to take what God showed him, to, to record it, and then to be able to, to, to tell Israel what he saw. And so the next several chapters, Ezekiel does just that. He takes very detailed notes of everything in this vision, everything exactly how he sees it, dimensions, and everything. And, and quite frankly, it's, it's not a real exciting read. But then we get to chapter 42, and he tells us about some rooms that were to be prepared for the priest. Now, the priests were God's people. They were a, a holy people. They were, they were the, the connection between the, the people and God. They they'd made the sacrifices and all the, the work of the priest. But in, in chapter 42... There's these rooms that are made specifically for the priest. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read much of this. But if you read verses 13 and 14, maybe I'll just read verse uh, 13 of chapter 42. Then he said unto me, The north chambers and the south chambers, which are before the separate place, they be holy chambers, where the priests that approach unto the Lord shall eat the most holy things. There shall they lay the most holy things, and the meat offering, and the sin offering, and the trespass offering, for the place is holy. And, and so as you read through these verses, and in the way God designs where the priest will be and where they will work, they were to be separate, and they were to be holy. Now we... Go then to verse 20, the end of chapter 42. And I want to read verse 20. He measured it by the four sides. It had a wall round about 500 reeds long and 500 broad to make a separation between the sanctuary and the profane place. So here we have the picture of a wall. And the way I understand it, and, I, and I'm, I'm not sure that I totally understand it exactly, but the way I see it, this wall is around the whole temple area. and I'm, I'm not quite sure what all the wall is around, but that's, that's what I'm envisioning, that this wall was around this, this, the, the temple. And the purpose of the wall, it says, was to make a separation between the sanctuary and and the profane place. This was a divider that God set up to separate His holy temple, His where the people came to offer their sacrifices, to do their thing. This was to be a separate place between the, the holy and the profane. A, a wall of separation. This was God's design. The problem was, when we get to verse 43, this is not what was happening. So, 43, after God gives Ezekiel this vision of the temple, then God reveals his glory to Ezekiel. And we already read those verses in the first part of chapter 43. 
God reveals himself to Ezekiel. Again, Ezekiel responds. And then God shows Ezekiel what was happening. I want to read chapter 43, starting with verse 7. And he said unto me, Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever, and my holy name shall the house of Israel no more defile. Neither they nor their kings by their whoredom, nor by the carcasses of their kings in their high places. In their, in their setting of their threshold by my thresholds, and their post by my post. And the wall between me and them, they have even defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed. Wherefore, I have consumed them in mine anger. So again, as we saw, God designed this to be a separate place and this wall to be a wall of separation. But what he shows Ezekiel is that that wall had been broken down. He says their thresholds or the thresholds of the world were right beside my thresholds. And the posts of the world were right beside his post. Instead of this wall of separation... The world was in the church, and the church was in the world. It was all mixed up. The, the church had allowed the world to, to, be, to be in it, to be a part of it. And, and God's response to this is in verse 8, Wherefore I have consumed them in my anger. God's response was anger. In Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 26, we see a very similar verse. In this chapter, God is revealing to Ezekiel the sins of the children of Israel. And here's what he says in chapter 22, verse 26. He says, Her priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane, Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean, and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. So again, God made it clear. He wanted a clear distinction. He wanted a holy people, a set-apart people. He wanted there to be separation between his people and the world, and that wall had been broken down. The remedy that God gives for this is in verse 9 of Ezekiel 43. Verse 9, Let them put away their whoredom and the carcasses of their kings far from me. Far from me. God didn't want them even close. He said, put them far from me. And then, this beautiful part of this verse, and I will dwell in the midst of them forever. God wanted to be with his people. He wanted to dwell with them. He wanted to help them. He wanted to to supply their needs. But as long as they were allowing the world to be in the church, he, he couldn't be there. He couldn't exist among a people who were not separate, who were not set apart. God wanted a clear distinction. And he said, put the things of the world far from me, and then I'll dwell with you. 
So God's message to Ezekiel was, I want a separate people. And the message for us today is, when we see God for who He really is, and when we respond to Him in humility and surrender, He will always call us to a life of separation. God wants the world to take, God wants the church to take the gospel to the world. But God never wants the world to creep in to the church. So, to review that section, God's design was that there was there be a clear separation between the holy and the profane. What happened was the world crept into the church and the wall was broken down. God's response was anger. And God's remedy was, put those things far from me and I'll dwell in the midst of them. God wanted to come back to his people, but the line of separation had to be in place. Now I want to shift gears and go to the New Testament and see what the New Testament says about separation. And you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. My mind was drawn to this passage because of the familiar verse, chapter 6, verse 17, where Paul says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And I already referred to that verse earlier. But here in chapter 6, we know this chapter as the passage on the unequal yoke. That's what we often think of when we think of chapter 6. And it seems that when we start talking about what it means to not be yoked together with unbelievers and and some of the specifics that surround that, what about this? What about this? And, And we can spend hours debating these things. What did God really mean? Is this okay? Is this okay? And, and, As I, as I look at this passage and look at the context, I really don't think it's something that God intended to be complicated. I don't think God really wanted us to overthink this thing of separation. And as, as, I, as I pondered this, I started to wonder, and I started to ask myself, it, at the end of the day, after all our discussions are over, I really think we usually get the right answer. But I wonder if sometimes we're asking the wrong question, or we start with the wrong question. Sometimes we focus on, come out from among them and be ye separate. And we try to figure out what that means, And we don't spend near enough time on the wherefore. Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate. What was Paul referring to when he said, wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate? And this morning, that's what I want to focus on. As I look at this passage, I'm not going to focus so much on the specifics. I'm going to focus on the wherefore. And I believe if we can truly grasp the significance of the wherefore, why Paul said this, why he said come out from among them and be separate, if we could really grasp that, a lot of our questions would be answered. 
And I believe that in order to to truly understand the wherefore, we need to go all the way back to chapter 3. I'm going to start reading chapter 3, verse 3. And and again, this is, to to really get the message, we should just read chapter 3 through the end of chapter 6. But we're not going to do that this morning. But but verse 3 of of chapter 3. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Now, we could read on, but I'm going to stop there. In these verses, Paul compares the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. He says the Old Covenant was written with ink, the New Covenant with the Spirit of the living God. The Old Covenant on tables of stone, the New Covenant fleshly tables of the heart. The Old Covenant, verse 6, not of the letter, or the Old Covenant was of the letter, the new covenant of the Spirit. The old covenant killeth, the new covenant giveth life. The old covenant, verse 7, was the ministration of death. Verse 8, the new covenant, the ministration of the Spirit. Verse 9, the old covenant, the ministration of condemnation. The new covenant, the ministration of righteousness. Verse 11, the old covenant, that which was done away, it was temporary. The new covenant, that which remaineth, it was permanent. So there's all these differences here in these verses between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But here's the deal. In spite of the limitations of the Old Covenant, it was glorious. It was glorious. It was instituted by God. It was designed by God to fulfill a certain purpose at a certain time, and it was glorious. And he he repeats this, he emphasizes it throughout this chapter, the glory of the Old Covenant. Now, who was the minister of the Old Covenant? It was Moses. Moses was the minister of the Old Covenant. And and we're going to come back to that here shortly. But but before I do, I want to think about the New Covenant. The Old Covenant had limitations, and yet it was glorious. The New Covenant was God's ultimate plan. It was written not with ink, but with the Spirit of God. Not on stone, but on our hearts. It didn't bring death, it brings life. The the New Covenant was the ultimate fulfilling of God's plan. It was what the Old Testament saints longed to see. And it's what we have today. And what Paul emphasizes over and over in these verses is, if the Old Covenant was glorious, how much more the New Covenant? 
just several verses to, to, to show you this. Go to verse 9. For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceeding glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. So, if you think the old one was glorious, really, in comparing it with the new one, it pales in comparison. Then verse 11, For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Praise God for the new covenant. What we have far surpasses the law of Moses. And yet the law of Moses was glorious. Now, I told you that Moses was the minister of the old covenant. Who is the minister of the new covenant? The answer is, we are. We are the ministers of the new covenant. Several verses to, to show you this. Second, and, and all these are, are in this passage between 2 Corinthians 3 and, and 6. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament. He's made us ministers of the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, therefore, seeing we have this ministry. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 and 19, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Just like Moses was a minister of the old covenant, we are the ministers of the new covenant. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, I'm not ordained. But I would just remind you, it doesn't take an ordination. It takes a conversion. If you are a child of God, if you have been saved by the blood of Christ, and you have the Spirit dwelling in you, then you are a minister of the new covenant. God has entrusted you with his ministry. Now, I want to go back to Moses and the Old Covenant. You may remember the account of Moses. This is in Exodus 34. Moses, after receiving the law, he had been with God 40 days and 40 nights, God speaking to him, God giving him the law. And he came down off the mountain, and his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. That's what, that's what we're told in Exodus 34. And so when Moses would go before the Israelites to speak to them, he would veil his face because of the glory. Second Corinthians 3, verse 7, speaks of this. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, 
how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? So again, this system that was temporary and imperfect was so glorious that Moses had to veil his face. What we have is even more glorious. Now, I want to go to verse 13 and see the correlation between Moses and his veil and us today with the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 13. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded. For unto this day remaineth the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. In Christ, this veil is taken away. We have the complete picture, the full glory of God, and we are ministers of that. We take that and we, we share it with the world. We show it to the world with unveiled faces, okay? And, and, and I want us to go now to verse 18, and, and it's a powerful, powerful verse if you can really get your mind around it. Verse 18 says, But we all, okay, not just preachers, not just missionaries, but we all with open face or unveiled face, not like Moses, but with open face, beholding as in a glass, or a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. In Christ, the veil is taken away. We have the full radiance of the glory of God. We have the full picture in Christ. And just like Moses we too reflect the glory of God. We reflect it. It says we behold it as in a glass or as in a mirror. We have a tremendous responsibility as God's children, as ministers of the new covenant. We have a tremendous responsibility. We behold with open face the glory of God and we, re- and we reflect that glory. Now, when that happens, it says we're changed. We're changed into the same image from glory to glory. And I want to talk just briefly about that word change. The, the Greek word here for changed is the same word that we get our word metamorphosis from. And in the natural sense, you understand this process of metamorphosis. In the process of, of metamorphosis, there is actual visual, visible change. Okay? Caterpillars actually become butterflies. They don't just become like butterflies, they become butterflies. Tadpoles actually become frogs. There's visible, real, definite change. Do we understand this in the spiritual sense? When we give our lives to Christ, we, when we behold the glory of God, when we see Him for who He is, we're changed. 
were, were metamorphosed, were changed into what? Were changed into the image of God. Now, if you remember, God created man in his image originally. But man chose to sin, and he marred that image. Sin separates us from God. But because of Jesus, we can be changed back into the image of God. And what a, what a tremendous privilege and what a tremendous responsibility that we have as God's children were changed into His image. And his, as His glory fills our life, it reflects to the world around us. It, it's both sobering and, it, and it's exciting. We have a tremendous privilege and responsibility as God's children. Now, as we get to chapters 4 and 5, there's, there's lots we could look at. I just want to point out a few things. The one thing is in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, it talks about something that veils our gospel. In chapter 4, it's verse 3 says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. The gods of this world blinds people's eyes to the glory of God. They can't see God for who He is because of the gods of this world. And what I want us as God's children to consider in this is what happens when we as God's children allow the gods of this world to be a part of our life. Does it not do the same thing to us? It diminishes that glory that's supposed to be radiating off of us. It makes our mirror dirty. A dirty mirror isn't much count. And when we allow the gods of this world into our life, it, it, it ruins who we are. It mars that image. We're not going to be able to reflect the glory of God the way He intended. It is a, it's a very... It's, it, it's, it's why we don't want to have anything to do with the gods of this world. Okay, the next thing I want to point out is in verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. If you think about the best way for God to get His message to the world and to radiate His, or, or to show His glory, who He was to the world, is, is the best way really to use us. Mortal beings made from the dust, our bodies are going to return to dust. We're only here for, for just a brief period of time. Why did God choose to use us to carry out this task? He tells us in verse 7, He, he did this so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. See, if God would have set up supermen of some sort that would that would carry out his purpose and that would be eternal beings that would always be here, always carrying out his purpose, we begin to worship them. But he chose to use us. 
And obviously, we're not capable. Obviously, we're not worthy. And so the glory goes to God. Or does it? That's the way God intends. And yet again, the challenge for us is, how often do we want to take the glory for ourselves? When God calls us into his ministry, when he calls us to do things for him, and we do it, and we do a good job, and then what? The glory starts to come to us. God forbid. God gave us a task that is too much for us so that the glory could go to him. And may we never try to take that glory and build up ourselves. May the glory go to God. The next thing I want to point out here that I find very exciting in in chapter 4 is, so we are earthen vessels that, that are given a tremendous responsibility. How can we do it? And what I see here is two things, or or, or two instances, that the power that caused the two greatest miracles of all time are at work in our lives. The power of creation, we find in verse 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The power that caused light to shine out of darkness is a work in our light to make us who God wants us to be. We have that power. The next thing is in verse 10. And it's the power of the resurrection. Verse 10, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. And it goes on to talk about that even more in verse 14. But the, the power that caused light to shine out of darkness and caused Jesus to raise from the dead, that power is at work in my life and in your life as a child of God to make you who God wants you to be and to, and to allow you to accomplish God's purpose in your life. The other thing Paul talks about various places throughout these chapters is difficult things. The difficulties we face in life. And and basically the the point he, he, he makes is that we can allow these difficulties to to make us who God wants us to be. And to to allow God to use these circumstances that, that seem so hard to use them for his glory. Just several verses. 2 Corinthians 4, I'm going to start with verse 16. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, Paul calls them light afflictions. Now, you know the story of Paul. I'll let you decide were his afflictions light or not. He calls them light afflictions. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So, 
these, these light afflictions that we face, if they can be used to accomplish God's purpose, praise God. So it's after all these things that Paul says, Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And I believe that if we could truly understand and embrace God's call on our life as ministers of the gospel, ministers of the new covenant, then separation would only make sense. Separation is the logical conclusion to everything that we've looked at in the last three chapters. We're ministers of the new covenant. We behold with unveiled faces the glory of God. We've been changed. We've been transformed into the image of God. We're new creatures. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. We're the temple of the living God. And I believe if we could truly understand and embrace this, the logical conclusion must be, come out from among them and be ye separate. Obviously, it only makes sense. What fellowship hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Bilal? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Paul asks these questions, and the answer is obvious. These things don't mix. Ye are the temple of God. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate. Obviously, these things don't mix. We're the temple of God. What business do we have being yoked together with unbelievers? I think if we could truly, again, understand and embrace this concept, separation is the logical conclusion. I do want to point out, though, separation doesn't happen automatically. Just because we do understand this, just because we say, yeah, okay, I get it, doesn't mean it happens automatically. Paul talks in these chapters about our need to renounce certain things. He talks about, he says, touch not the unclean thing. He says, cleanse yourself from all filthiness. These are intentional choices that we have to make. These are things that we have to discern taking things, looking at them and saying, is this of God or is it not? And we might say, there's nothing wrong with it. But is it of God? Is it going to make me who God wants me to be? And then we have to make a decision. Is this going to be a part of my life or is it not? And that's where we need the Spirit of God. It's where we need our brothers and sisters. And it's where we need sometimes just, just, Good old common sense. As we look at these things, does God want this to be a part of my life or doesn't he? So much of what the world has to offer, there's, it, it, at first glance, there seems to be nothing wrong with it. It's just good, clean fun. But beware. If the devil can fill, can get us to fill our minds and our time with things that have no eternal value, 
he's one. If he can get us to fill our minds and our time with things that have no eternal value, he's one. As God's people, we must be discerning. We must look at these things and say, you know what? It can't be a part of my life. And we need to renounce it. We need to cleanse ourselves. That's a part of being who God wants us to be. The world is passionately pursuing all manner of temporal pleasures and frivolous entertainment. And too often, we as Christians follow right along behind them. Instead of embracing a life of separation, we insist on a life of integration. God help us. Now I want to close now by going back to Ezekiel chapter 43. God wanted a wall of separation. But this wall had been broken down. And maybe you're sitting here today and in your heart you know that that's the case in your life. That wall has been broken down. The church is not separate from the world. In your life, as the temple of God, as a minister of the new covenant, you realize that there's a whole lot of world that has crept into your life. Maybe you think that you can somehow sit on top of the wall and have one leg in the church and one leg in the world. And you think that God will be okay with that. But it doesn't work that way. God was angry because the wall of separation was broken down. And I believe that today it still grieves the heart of God when we try to portray His image and yet we're yoked together with the world. And the point I want to make here is that coming back to God requires more than simply a desire to do better. It it requires more than simply saying, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. In verses 18 through 27 of Ezekiel 43, I'm not going to read them, but God gives instructions on what must be done in order to restore a right relationship with him. And to sum it up, we can just sum it up like this. God's way required a lot of effort. God's way required a lot of time. And God's way required a lot of innocent blood being shed. So here's the deal. God wants to receive you back. God wants to dwell among you. But in order for that to happen, if if you find yourself on the wrong side of the wall, don't think that you can come back to God on your terms. If you want to be restored to a right relationship with God, you must do it on on, on His terms. And still today, innocent blood must be shed. And that is the blood of Jesus. We need to come to God and repent. Renounce those things of the world and come back to Him on His terms. And what a beautiful ending to chapter 43. And I will accept you, saith the Lord God. God was consumed with anger, and yet He said, Do it my way, and I'll accept you. When we come to God in true repentance, 
when we claim the blood of Jesus on our life, we can have the assurance that God will bring us back. We can be who God wants us to be. My desire for this message is this, that as we consider the tremendous call of God on our life, that we could not only fulfill the call of separation, but we could embrace it. We have been changed. We are ministers of the new covenant. We are the temple of the living God. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate. May God bless you.